Section number 38 of Canada, the Empire of the North. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Linda Marie Nielsen, Vancouver, B.C. Canada, the Empire of the North by Agnes C. Lott from 1812 to 1820 part five it is a month later down at fort george on the canadian side general vincent knows well what has happened at toronto and is on the lookout for the enemy's fleet on the american side of the niagara river from lake ontario to lake erie are seven thousand troops eager to wipe out the stain of last year's defeat on the canadian side from Fort George to Chippewa and Erie are 2,300 men, mostly volunteers from surrounding farms, and powder is scarce and provisions are scarce, for Chauncey's fleet has cut off help from St. Lawrence and Kingston Way. All the last two weeks of May, heavy hot fog lay on the lake and on the river between the hostile lines. But there was no mistaking what Chauncey's fleet was about. Red-hot shot showers on Fort George in a perfect rain. Standing on the other side of the river are thousands of spectators, among them one grand old swashbuckler fellow in a cocked hat, whose fighting days are past, taking snuff after the fashion of a former generation and wearing an air of grand patronage to the American troops, because he has seen service in Europe. No, sir, says the grand old fighting cock, pompously to his auditors, can't be done, have seen it tried on the continent, and you can't do it. Lay a wager you can't do it. Can't possibly set fire to a fort by red-hot shot. Then, at night-time, when the lurid glare of flame lights up the foggy darkness, the old gentleman is put to his trumps. See, they say, Fort George is on fire, and over at Fort George the bucket brigade works hard as the cannoneers. But the fog is too good a chance to be missed by Chauncey, rowing out with muffled oars all the nights of May 24th and 25th, he has his men sounding, sounding, sounding in silence the channel, right within pistol-shot of Fort George. The night of the 26th, troops and marines are bidden breakfast at two in the morning, and be ready for action with a single blanket and rations for one day. That is all they are told. They embark at four. The waters are dead calm the morning of the 27th gray as wool with fog sweeps out chancey's fleet circles up to fort george with one hundred scows in tow carrying fifty soldiers each vincent takes his courage in his teeth and gathers his one thousand men inside the walls then the cannon of the frigates split fog and air and earth and under cover of the fire the scows gain the land by 9 a.m. First, 
Vincent's sharpshooters sally from the fort and fire. Then they fire from the walls. Then they overturn guns, retreat from the walls, throw what powder they cannot carry into the water, and retreat, fighting, behind stone walls and ditches. The contest of one thousand against six thousand is hopeless. Vincent sends couriers riding like the wind to Chippewa and Queenston and Erie, ordering the Canadians to retire to the back country. By four o'clock in the afternoon, Americans are in possession of the Canadian side from Fort George to Erie. Vincent retreats at quick march along the lake shore towards what is now Hamilton. June 1st, General Dearborn sends his officers, Chandler and Winder, in hot pursuit with 3,500 men. Vincent's soldiers have less than 90 rounds of powder to a man. He has only 1,000 men, for the garrisons of Chippewa and Queenston Heights and Erie have fallen back in a circle to the region of St. David's. June 5th, Vincent's Canadians are in camp at Burlington Bay. Only seven miles away, at Stony Creek, lies the American army. Out sentries posted at a church, artillery on a height commanding a field, officers and men asleep in the long grass. Humanly speaking, nothing could prevent a decisive battle the next day. The two American officers, Chandler and Winder, sit late into the night, candles alight over camp stools, mapping out what they think should be the campaign. It is a hot night, muggy with June showers, lighted up by an occasional flash of sheet lightning. Then all candles out, and perch darkness, and silence as of a desert. The American army is asleep, in the dead sleep of men exhausted, from long, hard, swift marching. The artillerymen on the hillocks, the sentries, the outposts at the church, they too are sound asleep. But the Canadians, too, know that, humanly speaking, nothing can prevent a decisive battle on the morrow. The stories run, I do not vouch for their truth, though facts seem to point to some such explanation that Harvey, a Canadian officer, had come back to the American army that night disguised as a Quaker peddling potatoes, and noted the unguarded condition of the exhausted troops. Also that Fitzgibbons, the famous scout, came through the American lines dressed as a rustic selling butter. Whether these stories are true or not, or whether, indeed, the Canadians knew anything about the American camp, they plucked resolution from desperation. If they waited for the morrow's battle, they would be beaten. Harvey proposed to Vincent that seven hundred picked men go back through the dark and raid the American camp. Vincent left the entire matter to Harvey, setting out at 11.30 along what is now Main Street, Hamilton, the Canadians marched in perfect silence. Harvey had given orders that not a shot should be fired, not a word spoken. 
the bayonet alone to be used by two in the morning of june sixth the marchers came to the church where the sentries were posted two were stabbed to death before they awakened the third was compelled to give the password then bayoneted in turn the canadian raiders might have come to the very midst of the american army if it had not been for the jubilant hilarity of some young officers who capturing a cannon uttered a wild huzza on the instant bugles sounded alarm drums beat a crazy tattoo and every man leaped from his place in the grass hand on pistol the next second the blackness of the night was ablaze with musketry the soldiers were firing blindly officers were shouting orders that nobody heard troops were dashing here there everywhere lost in the darkness the heavy artillery horses breaking tether ropes and stampeding over the field major penderleith with a company of young canadians suddenly found himself in the midst of the american camp one of the young raiders stabbed seven americans to death a brother bayoneted four and before daylight betrayed the smallness of the forces the raiders came safely off with three guns and one hundred prisoners including the two american officers winder and chandler the loss to the british was one hundred and fifteen killed and wounded but there would be no battle the next day the battle of stony creek sent the americans retreating back down the lake front to fort george harried by the english fleet under sir james yeo from kingston a hundred episodes might be related of the stony creek raid for years it was to be the theme of campfire yarns for instance in the flare of musketry fire a canadian found himself gazing straight along the blade of an american's bayonet sir the password demanded the american sentry luckily the scout instead of wearing an english red coat had on a blue jacket resembling that of the american marines and he instantly took his cue rascal he thundered back what do you mean off your line go back to your post the sentry's bayonet dropped there was momentary darkness and the canadian literally bolted then ludicrous ill luck befell all the generals vincent had accompanied the raiders on horseback when the bugle sounded retire he gave his horse the bit and in the pitch darkness the brute carried him pell-mell along the wrong road over fences and hayfields some fifteen miles into the back country next day when vincent was missing under flag of truce messengers went to the retreating american army to find if he were among the dead at four in the afternoon his horse came limping into the canadian camp chandler the american officer on awakening had sprung on horseback and spurred over the field shouting commands in the darkness his horse fell and threw him when chandler came to himself he was prisoner among the canadians winder's ill luck was equally bad 
by the flare of the firing he saw what he thought was a group of artillerymen deserting a gun dashing up he laid about him with his pistol shouting come on come on another flare of fire and he found himself surrounded by a circle of canadian bayonets drop your pistol sir or you are a dead man ordered a young canadian and winder surrendered it will be recalled that the garrisons of queenstown below the falls and chippewa above and erie at the head of the river had retreated from the invading americans to the back country now traversed by welland canal from different posts beyond what was known as the black swamp these bands of the dispersed canadian army swooped down on the american outposts harrying the whole american line from lake ontario to lake erie of all the raiders none was more daring than lieutenant fitzgibbons posted beyond the beaver dams at a stone house near decues falls space forbids more than one episode of his raids once while riding along lundy's lane alone he was recognized by the wife of a canadian captain who dashed from the cottage warning him to retreat as a hundred and fifty americans had just passed that way standing in front of the roadside inn was the cavalry horse of an american fitzgibbons couldn't resist the temptation for a bout with the foe and dismounting was entering the door when a soldier in blue dashed at him with leveled musket naturally not keen to create alarm fitzgibbons knocked the weapon from the man's hand and without a sound had thrown him on the ground when another american rifleman dashed from behind strong as a lion fitzgibbons threw the first man violently against the second and was holding both at bay beneath his leveled rifle when one of the downed men snatched the irishman's sword from the scabbard he was in the very act of thrusting the sword point into fitzgibbons when the innkeeper's wife with a dexterous kick sent the weapons whirling out of his hand fitzgibbons disarmed the men tied them threw them across his horse and himself mounting galloped to the woods with a laugh though one hundred and fifty americans were within a quarter a mile the american commanders at niagara determined to clean out this nest of raiders from the back country and lieutenant Boostler was ordered to march from fort george with some six hundred men leaving fort george secretly at night Boostler came to queenston at eleven on the night of june twenty third here all canadian soldiers free on parole were seized to prevent word of the attack reaching the back country the troops were not even permitted to light camp fire or candles the great secrecy of the american marchers at once roused suspicion among the canadians between queenston and the village of st david's that the expedition was directed against fitzgibbon's scouts at his home 
between Queenston and St. David's dwelt a United Empire loyalist, James Secord, recovering from dangerous wounds received in the Battle of Queenston Heights. He was too weak himself to go by night and forewarn Fitzgibbons, but his wife, Laura Ingersoll, a woman of some thirty years, was also of the old United Empire Loyalist stock. She immediately set out alone for the back country to warn Fitzgibbons. Many and contradictory stories are told of her march. Whether she tramped two nights and two days, or only one night and one day, whether her march led her twenty or only twelve miles, matters little. She succeeded in passing the first century on the excuse she was going out to milk a cow, and she eluded a second by telling him she wished to visit a wounded brother, which was true. Then she struck away from the beaten path through what was known as the Black Swamp. It had rained heavily. The cedar woods were soggy with moisture, the swamp swollen, and the streams running a mill race. Through the summer heat, through the windfall, over the quaking forest bog, trapped Laura Secord. It may be supposed that the most of wild animals had been frightened from the woods by the heavy cannonading for almost a year. But the hoot of screech owl, the eldritch scream of wildcat, the far howl of the wolf pack hanging on the trail of the armies for carrion were not sounds quieting to the nerves of a frightened woman flitting through the forest by moonlight. It was clear moonlight when she came within range of Beaver Dam and Decoux's house. She had just emerged in an open field when she was assailed with unearthly yells and a thousand ambushed Indians rose from the grass. Woman, a woman, what does a white woman here? demanded the chief, seizing her arm. She answered that she was a friend, and it was matter of life and death for her to see Fitzgibbons at once. So Laura Secord delivered her warning and saved the Canadian army. The episode has gone down to history, one of the national legends, like the story of Madeleine Verchet on the St. Lawrence. Fitzgibbons posts his forty men in place, and Ducharme, commander of the Indians, scatters his one thousand redskins in ambush along the trail. Also, word is sent for two other detachments to come with all speed. June 24th, at seven in the morning, Boster is moving along a narrow forest trail through the beech woods of Beaver Dams. The men are advancing single file, mounted infantrymen, first with muskets slouched across saddle pommels, then the heavy wagons, then cavalry to rear. The timber is heavy, the trail winding. Here the long line deploys out from the trail to avoid jumping windfall. There halt is made to cut away for the wagons. Then the long line moves sleepily forward, yellow sunlight shafted through the green foliage, a 
across the rider's blue uniforms. Suddenly a shot rings out, and another, and another. The forest is full of unseen foes. Before, behind, on all sides, the cavalry forces breaking rank and dashing forward among the wagons. Bosler sees it will be as unsafe to retreat as to go on. Sending messages back to Fort George for aid, he pushes forward in an open wheat field. Fifty-six men have fallen, and the bullets are still raining from an invisible foe. Looking back, he sees mounted men in green coats passing and repassing across his trail, filing and refiling. It is a trick of Fitzgibbons to give an impression he has ten times forty men. But the Americans do not know. There is no retreat, and Indians are to the fore. In the midst of confusion, Fitzgibbons comes forward with a white handkerchief on his sword point and begs Bostier to prevent bloodshed by instant surrender. Bostier demands to see the number of his enemies. Fitzgibbons says he will repeat the request to his commanding officer. Luck is with Fitzgibbons, for just as he goes back, a small party of reinforcements arrives, and one of its captains acts the part of commanding officer, telling Bostier's messenger hotly that the demand to see the enemy is an insult. An answer must be given in five minutes, or the Canadians will not be responsible for the Indians. The fight has lasted three hours. Bostier surrenders with his entire force. Such was the battle of Beaver Dams. End of section 38. Recording by Linda Marie Nielsen, Vancouver, B.C.